0: Bismillah ar-Rahman rahim alhamdulillahi rabbil alameen, wassalatu wassalamu ala rasulihil ameen, wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in amma ba'd. So we're going to be looking at the story of the night journey and the ascension of the Prophet ﷺ into the heavens known as al-Isra wal-Mi'raj. And we're going to look at the story More or less in brief. And then we're going to look at uh, some of the wisdoms and the lessons from it. The benefits from the story. And I want to to focus on something in particular. And that is indicating that the story happened to the Prophet in body and in spirit. That it was not a dream. As you will find some authors today saying that. Claiming that it was just a dream that the Prophet had. And it was not in body and in spirit. I want to also focus on that aspect of it. So let's start with the fact that this is the most thoroughly documented incident in the Meccan era. The most thoroughly documented. So it's funny that when people choose to challenge the story, they're challenging the most thoroughly documented incident. (laughs) So there are 20 narrations in Sahih al-Bukhari through six different companions on the story of Al-Isra and Mi'raj, There are 18 narrations of Sahih Muslim through seven different companions. Besides the fact that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentioned some of its incidents in Surah Al-Najm and in Surah Al-Isra. So let's start with the verse in Surah Al-Isra. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, أَعُوذُ بِاللَّهِ مِنَ الشَّطَانِ الرَّجِيمِ بِسْمِ اللَّهِ الرَّحْمَنِ الرَّحِيمِ سُبْحَانَ الَّذِي أَسْرَى بِعَبْدِهِ لَيْلًا مِنَ الْمَسْجِدِ الْحَرَامِ إِلَى الْمَسْجِدِ الْأَقْصَىٰ أَلَّذِي بَارَكْنَا حَوْلَهُ لِنُرِيَهُ مِنْ آيَاتِنَا إِنَّهُ هُوَ السَّمِيعُ الْبَصِيرُ So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala bring, begins by praising himself. Praise be to him. الَّذِي Biabdihi. بِعَبْدِهِ Isra in Arabic Laylan. So Arabic as you know is a very precise and very detailed language. And there is a specific name for when the caravan travels at night. That's called al-Isra. All right. (laughs) I'm just laughing because, um, I I don't know, six or seven years ago, uh, there was someone who was so confidently telling me, no, no, Isra doesn't mean that. And he was so confident that I went back home that night and, and Googled it again and looked it up. And yes, it's exactly what it means. But I shouldn't have listened to him. He was just Arab. Confident yet wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Alright, anyways, I'm kidding for those who don't get it. I'm kidding. So Al Isra'uwa al Laylan. The caravan traveling at night, that's Al Isra'. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says subhanallah, bi'abdi Laylan. Right? You see it twice. The night is mentioned twice. So glory be to him who took his servant on a night journey at night, right? Because Al-Isra is traveling at night and then Laylan means at night. So the, the mufassirin and the linguists say when you have the night mentioned twice, it indicates that the entire journey only took a part of the night. And that's exactly what happened. The Prophet ﷺ went in just part of the night from Al-Masjid al- al- Al-Haram from in Mecca all the way to Al-Masjid Al-Aqsa Al Aqsa means Al Abad, the furthest most. And at that time, there was no masjid that was more to the west than this masjid. It was the furthest western masjid, يعني, in the west direction. For that, it was called Al Aqsa, the furthest most. So, um, حوله, that we have put barakah, blessing, around it. So the scholar said that means that there is barakah in the land. And of course, we're talking about the land of Palestine. May Allah free it from the hands of the Zionists. So the, the land is blessed. So they said that means its trees are blessed, its water is blessed, and the land itself has blessing in it from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So that we may show him from our signs. And Allah indeed is the, the all hearing, the all see. So... That's in Surah al-Isra, first verse, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is mentioning and referring to this verse, uh, to this incident. And this happened, the timing now before we begin, this happened after what is known as the year of sorrow. So this is after the death of Abu Talib, which in some narrations three days later, in other narrations, two months later, Khadija Radullah anha dies. So now the Prophet, his protector from the humans outside of the house and his support inside the house. Both are gone. Then he takes the journey to Al-Ta'if, which doesn't go well. And so the historians and the scholars refer to that year as the year of sorrow or sadness because of how saddened and how difficult life was for the Prophet ﷺ. So the timing is excellent now because now the Prophet ﷺ is going to see some amazing signs of Allah Taala. He's going to see Al Jannah is going to see punishment in the Hellfire. He's going to meet the prophets and lead them in Salah and see Jibril in his original form, and he's going to speak to Allah Azza wa So you can understand the upliftment that happens after uh, such a journey. Now, uh, in there, we said there are many narrations, so we're going to we're going to take like a mixture of all the narrations to more or less get the full story. So in one narration the Prophet was at the Kaaba, in another narration he was at his home when Jibreel came to him and he opened his chest and took his heart out. So you'll find some of the books, some of the contemporary books will deny this and they'll say and they'll either skip it or say in the dream he washed his chest. Like, first of all, the first washing of the of the chest and the and the word or of the heart of the Prophet Sallallahu happened when he was Five years old, right? So five years old was the first one. And now this is the second incident. When he's much, this is much later, right? This is the, um, which I forgot to mention. When does this happen? The Isra mira journey. The scholars said, some said one year before the hijrah. Others said 13 months before the hijrah. Others said 15 months before the hijrah to Medina. Others said eight months. But there are about 15 different opinions here. But more or less we're looking at a period of a year before the hijrah to Medina. And so this is so much later. And the Prophet at this point is about 50. This is, we're, looking, we're looking at 11 years or so. He's about 51 years. So the first one was at age, age 5. And now this second one is at age 51. So what prompted this? Because the Prophet is about to go on this journey. That is a very difficult journey. He's going to see things that no human being can can handle seeing. If you remember the narration when the Prophet saw Jibreel in his original form for the first time what happened. In one of the narrations, he fainted. And now he's going to see Jibreel in his original form for the second time. But he doesn't faint this time. Because this is in preparation for that journey to strengthen his heart. So... Jibreel came and opened the chest of the Prophet ﷺ from here all the way to like his navel basically or his abdomen, uh, lower abdomen. And the Prophet could see this. And I want you to understand when the companion said the Prophet was the bravest one amongst us, we've got a number of things to discuss. Number one, those who denied this incident, they said, how can we believe in open heart surgery happening in the desert? What is harder to believe? Open heart surgery, which I'm sure is happening right now somewhere in the world as we speak. Someone's having open heart surgery. So this is something that we can... What is a bigger thing to believe in? Open heart surgery or Jibreel a.s. The leader of all the angels. Shadeedun quwa. Dhumirra. What is harder... Which is the stronger thing to believe in? The bigger deal. Jibreel a.s. I didn't tell you that 1400 years ago, Dr. Chowdhury uh, performed open heart surgery in the middle of the desert without anesthetics and, and sterilization and equipment. He said Jibreel a.s. did it. You understand? So consider the surgeon, not the surgery. If I told you Jibreel did it, say, who's Jibreel? Well, Allah is one of the most magnificent angels in his He's got 700 wings, each one will cover the horizon. Okay, makes sense. If I told you Dr. Sadiq, did it. Tell Allah how did the Siddiqi do it that does it? That makes no sense. So consider the surgeon. When well, people want to deny what happened, you know what's interesting? Anas ibn Malikallah and who is the servant or was the servant of the Prophet, he said, I used to al I used to see the scar of when the where the Prophet's heart was opened. His chest was opened. Taib. do you think Jibreel مثلا, don't you think Jibreel could have done it? Without leaving a scar? Probably, right? If he can take his heart out well, and wash it and bring it back, he could also probably do it without a scar. But why leave the scar? So that Anas who will see it and he will tell us that he saw it. So it's not in a dream, it's not impossible. It actually happened. So so the Prophet he said, Jibreel split his chest open like this and took his heart and he washed it in a, a tist which is like a bowl. A bowl like that has a flat kind of bottom of gold. And he washed his heart in it. He filled it with wisdom and he filled it with the iman. And then he sealed it back. All right. Then so this is in preparation for the journey. Then the Prophet says they brought. he brought al-Buraq. Jibreel ﷺ brought this animal that the Prophet is going to ride. And the Prophet described it very accurately it's as if you can see it right now if you close your eyes or if you can photoshop an image of it it's possible because the Prophet said it's white and then he said فوق الحمار ودون البغل larger than a donkey and smaller than a mule that's, can you see it? yeah you know what a mule looks like? you know what a mule is? anyone know what a mule is? a mule is uh, a hybrid animal. It's, uh, its mother is a horse. وَأَبُوهُ <laughs> Its father is a donkey and the mother is a horse. That, that creates what is known as a mule. Okay, baghl. Alright? If it's the opposite, لَأُوُمْا <laughs> عَمَارَةَ Such a great opportunity to say that. If the mother is a donkey and the father is a horse, that's not a mule. Anyone know what that's called in, in, in English? No? It's called a hinny. H-I-N-N-Y. That's a hinny. And it actually looks very different than a mule. It's much smaller and looks more donkey-like. You know, whereas a mule has, it has the sure-footedness of a donkey, but uh, stronger than that. And it has the stronger immune system of the donkey but it has also the strength of the, much, much stronger than a donkey because it's big, much bigger because of the horse. So it's like a really good mix, a good blend, but it is also an animal that uh, it's not a viable, it's not, it's sterile because just for those who are interested, a don- the donkey has 62 chromosomes and the horse has 64 chromosomes and the mule has 63 chromosomes. What's the problem? In order to procreate, what happens? Your reproductive cells, they split in half, right? You get half from the father, half from the mother. But 63, how do you split that in half? That's why for the most part, they are sterile. They're not able to have uh, other uh, offspring. And the point is that the Prophet said it's white and it's larger than a donkey and smaller than a mule. You can see it. What about the narrations of wings? What about the narration that it has a human face and everything else was a horse? All these narrations are weak. Best. No wings, no face of a human. All these things are weak. And you look at all the per- uh, Persian paintings of this human face on this animal that looks weird anyways. I know. This is a, an honor to ride this animal. It didn't look very... <laughs> what they draw it doesn't look nice at all. Taib. So the Prophet then... When he came to ride it, one narration mentions that the animal moved a little bit before the Prophet could ride it. And Jibreel spoke to it and he said, Why are you doing that? No one has ever ridden you who is greater than he And when he said that, Prophet said the animal started to sweat. It got nervous. So it it was an animal that could understand. Someone said, This is evidence that the burak is not from al-Jannah. Because if it's from al-Jannah, it will not move away because everything in al-Jannah is obedient, right? When you want the bird in al-Jannah, does it come to you? or Well, it flies away and you have to chase it. When you want fruits in al-Jannah, do they come down to you? Well, you have to get up and fall off a ladder. Everything is obedient in al-Jannah. So someone said, this is proof that the Burak came from another planet. And that's proof. Now we're in another world. Now And then he said, this is proof that there are aliens also that exist and all this stuff But So It's It's simple It could still be from Al Jannah But It was take, It was put in a world And it was Out of its element Meaning The burak is from Al Jannah It never felt heat It never felt Sand in its eyes It never felt Jagged rocks You know Against its hooves And So it was in a world That was different to it So it behaved differently Yes. We we'll do have to create a new world where aliens live. It just could be from Al Jannah. But it's in a weird place. It's not from Earth, but it behaved differently. But then when Jibril told it, it reacted. And then the Prophet rode on this animal. And then the Prophet described how it moves. He says, where it puts its hoof, its stride, is at the end of where it can see. Meaning, if it can see the, at the end, like at the horizon, that's where it puts its. Hoof like that. That's one step. So you can see one, two, three, the insane distance that it can cover in no time. There is an explanation also from the scholars that makes a lot of sense. Okay? And that is that the Burak, it puts it hoof, but it jumps as far as it can see. So it can see until the end of the horizon here. So it jumps in the air and lands there. Then it jumps to the next point as far as its eye can see. And what is that narration? or explanation make a lot of sense. It makes a lot of sense because it explains how later on, on the way back, the Prophet ﷺ was able to see the caravan with the missing camel. He was able to see it from up top and he yelled out to the to the men where their camel was because he was able to see it from his vantage point. Make sense? Makes sense? Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah? Excellent. Okay. So, uh, so then, the, the Prophet ﷺ, this is the, the Isra' journey. The Prophet ﷺ rides this buraq, this animal, and goes from Mecca to Bayt al Maqdis. This is a journey that took one month going and one month coming. And the Prophet, ﷺ, because of how this animal moves, you can understand how he did it. In a very short period of time, he was at Bayt al Maqdis. And we have a different a number of narrations here, but one of them is that they arrived at Bayt al maqdis Then the Prophet says, bil or So I tied the buraq down or at the post where all the prophets tied their animals. Because someone said the fact that the pros- the Prophet tied the Burak indicates that it was also from another planet and not from Jannah, Because Jannah animals are obedient And the Burak wouldn't go anywhere So he wouldn't have to tie it down But the Prophet told you why he tied it down It's a very nice hint there He said at the same post Where all the Prophets tied their animals So the Prophet ﷺ Is saying all my brothers They came to this place Al-Masjid al-Aqsa, And they all came On worldly animals That would stray and go somewhere else If they didn't tie them down And so they all tied down down their animals in this post. And even though my animal's not going to run away, I'm going to tie it where all my brothers tied their camels. You understand? Like the, in line with all... Nobody's impressed. Yeah? Thank you very much, uh, Sheikh Ibrahim. Appreciate it. Okay. Anyways. I like these things because I don't like aliens and talk about aliens, okay? Yeah. Plus, why would aliens come to... Yeah, in the Arabian Peninsula. Everybody knows aliens come to America. Alright, great. So, uh, then the Prophet goes into Bayt al-Maqdis. We've got two narrations. One narration says he went into Bayt al-Maqdis, then he led all the prophets in prayer, and then he ascended up to the heavens. The other narration is that he went into Bayt al-Maqdis, ascended up to the heavens, and then came back down, and led all the prophets in prayer. So, Either way, what's important is what? What's important is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala honoring his Prophet ﷺ to, and, and with him leading all the Prophets of Allah. So, did he lead them all in body and, or in spirit? Some of the scholars said he led them all in spirit, meaning the Prophet was there in body and in spirit, but he led the spirit of all the Prophets of Allah in salah. And others said, no, he led them in body and in spirit because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala honored him by bringing them in body and in spirit. And an interesting note, as you remember, the earth does not consume the bodies of prophets. So their bodies were still in 100% good condition. So they were in body and in spirit. He led them in the salah and then he ascended up or he ascended and came back and led them in, in, in prayer the point is that the honor of having him as the final messenger, lead all the messengers and prophets in Salah. Now, so in this narration, the Prophet ﷺ prayed and then he stepped out of al-Masjid al-Aqsa and then Jibreel brought him a container of wine and a container of milk and he gave him a choice to drink. And so the scholar said, this was obviously before wine became haram. Because if wine were haram, what would be the option or the choice? Yeah, and if someone brings you beef and pork, is it a test really for you? And so the Prophet ﷺ, as we know, never drank wine. Not even before prophethood. So he took the milk. And Jibreel ﷺ tells him, أَصَبْتَ your choice coincided or agreed with al-Fitrah, which is the natural disposition. And the milk... Represented the fitrah because the milk is a, is a liquid in its natural form, whereas wine has gone through a chemical alteration in order to become wine. So it's something that has been altered and not close to the fitrah. So the Prophet ﷺ chose the, the wine, I mean, sorry, the. الله, the Prophet ﷺ chose the milk and he drank from it. Then the Prophet ﷺ said, Then the mi'raj was brought forth. And the Mi'raj, Ibn Kathir rahimahullah says, it's like a sullum, like a ladder. But basically, anything that takes you from a low position to a high position is a Mi'raj. Yani an elevator is a Mi'raj, escalator is a Mi'raj, stair is a Mi'raj, ladder is a Mi'raj. But what's interesting, the Prophet ﷺ described the buraq in excellent detail, to the point where if you close your eyes, you can see it. But never described anything about the Mi'raj. Not its color, not its shape, not its size, not how it moves, or anything. Just one narration says, then the mi'raj was brought forth. Then another narration says, then I was uh, then I ascended upwards. And he didn't describe the instrument whatsoever. Who knows why? We would like to take a guess? Why? Why didn't he describe the mi'raj at all? Where is it taking him? Huh? Naam. Maybe. That's 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 not bad. I've never heard that before. Yes. Yeah. None? Okay, possibly. Okay. So yeah. can we handle those So So they said, the scholars mentioned that first of all. We don't have any evidence, what's the Mi'raj going to do? It's going to take him beyond the, our first worldly heaven, beyond space. This is an insane distance and at insane speeds, something we cannot understand. So they said, number one, we don't even have proof that Prophet understood the mechanism through which it works, let alone to explain it to the companions, how would they understand it, if today we can't understand it. You see what I'm saying? So that's why the Prophet never described the miraj because even if he understood it mechanically, he couldn't explain it. That would uh, take away from the story. Aslan and look at this insane contraption, this device that's amazing, and how does it work? And the Prophet explaining that. Okay, so that's uh, that's why the Prophet did not describe the miraj whatsoever. Now, one time, someone who is uh, like really brilliant in science and what have you, but Muslim came to me and said, I have a problem with the Isra al Ma'raj. And not because he said, the Prophet would have to move faster than the speed of light. And if I had time, I would explain to you what would happen to the human body if it moves faster than the speed of light. And he said, I have a problem with the uh, splitting of the moon because of the, the, the tides and the connection with the gravitational pull between the moon and the earth. And that would throw things out of, you know, order and all that. He said, I also have a problem with the splitting of the moon. I said, all these things, the gravitational relationship between the earth and the moon and what happens to the human body at the speed of sound, all these things. Who created all these laws? He said, Allah Azawajal. I said, can Allah put a law he created on pause for a minute? He said, yes. I said, what's the problem? True story. He said, there is no problem it's fixed. There's not, not an issue anymore, you know. So when people try to say, "Well, it's impossible," how could the Prophet travel these insane distances? Take it easy. Let's go back to Dr. Chowdhury again, and, and you understand how. All right. So, so the Prophet then it it gets on this uh, on the miraj and goes up to the heavens. The, not the sky, but the heavens and some scholars say the first heaven is beyond space even which is still growing but either way every time the prophet every time they reached one of the gates of the heavens the seven heavens and i'm not go, i'm just going to describe it once so we don't go through it every time jibril would knock on the gate of that heaven Then the angel would say who is it and he would say Jibreel. then he would say who is with you anyone with you and he would say muhammad and then he would welcome them sallallahu alaihi wasallam then he would open the, the gates of that heaven, then they would go into that heaven. So, in the first heaven, the Nabi ﷺ described that he saw Adam ﷺ. And he described also, the this narration described the size of Adam ﷺ. When he looked to the right, he laughed. And when he, then there was a huge mass to his right. When he looked to his right, he laughed. And when he looked to his left, he, there was a huge mass to his left, and he would cry. So, he asked Jibril, who is that? And he said, that is Adam a.s. He said, what are these to, to his right and left? He said, that is like a representation or, or from his progeny that will enter al-Jannah. It's to his right. So when he sees them, he's happy and he laughs and he smiles. Then he looks to the left and he sees the representation or his progeny that will enter the hellfire. So he cries for them because he is our father a.s. So then the Prophet went to him and he welcomed him. He said, welcome, righteous prophet, righteous son. And then they went to the second heavens and they sought permission in the same way. And then they were, they entered the second heaven. He says, there I saw Abna al-Khala, the two basically uh, cousins, right? All right. Uh, uh, Isa and Yahya. And then the Prophet describes Isa I think we mentioned this before. Prophet is always keen to describe Isa alayhi salam, and towards the end of times, describes even the color of the garment that he's going to be wearing, describes the length of his hair, what kind of hair he has, and part of that is to set him apart from the other messiah, and that is the Dajjal who has a different build, a different uh, style of hair. So the Prophet described Isa alayhi salam so well that he said, "And the one who looks the most he, from all of you," he's telling the companions, "the one who looks the most." Like Isa ibn Maria الصلاة, is Urwa ibn Mas'ud. So he says, Urwa ibn Mas'ud is the one who look, resembles him the most in build, in shape, in appearance. So then he they sought permission and they go into the third heaven. And in the third heaven, he saw Yusuf a.s. He says, I saw Yusuf a.s. Uh, وَإِذَا هُوَ قَدْ أُعْطِيَ شَطْرَ الْحُسْنِ I saw Yusuf salam. And he has been given half of the beauty. طيب, half of the beauty. What does that mean? Some, one opinion. And that's like the scholars like Ibn al-Qayyim rahimahullah have, has this opinion. He said half of the beauty that would have been distributed amongst all of mankind. يعني, يعني we don't know how many billions of people were, will live and die from the time of Adam until the day of judgment. So all these human beings, Allah, uh, let's just for lack of a better term say it, Allah set aside an amount of beauty to be distributed amongst all the faces and bodies and hairs of all these people. Right? And He took that beauty, cut it in half, gave half of it to Adam الصلاة, to uh, Yusuf alayhi sala, and the rest to the rest of creation. It's a lot, isn't it? shwaya, isn't it? It's a lot. So, that's why this is not a very popular opinion. Another opinion says, half, and this is one of the more popular ones and more accepted, half the beauty of Adam alayhi salam, Because hands down, you have to believe that the most handsome human being ever would have been Adam alayhi salam, not Yusuf alayhi salam. Why? Yeah, because Allah taala created him, but not only created him, Allah جل, honored Adam salam and shaped him with His own hands, Subhanahu إِمَّا خَلَقْتُ بِيَدَيْهِ Allah وجل says. So, hands down, the most handsome man and beautiful man ever has to be Adam alayhi salam, and the most beautiful woman ever has to be Hawa Eve. So, so Yusuf salam was given half of the beauty of Adam. This is the opinion of Ibn Kathir and Ibn Al jawzi rahimahumullah. There's a third opinion that says half of, this is Ibn qutaybah that's his opinion, he says half of the absolute maximum of beauty. Basically, it's, this is again not one of the more popular ones, the second one was the most popular, meaning that what is the maximum amount of beauty that any one human being could ever get, ever possibly get, and half of that was given to Yusuf alayhi salam. Alright, not a very popular opinion. There's another opinion that you might have heard might have heard before, and that is half because they said the Prophet used strange wording when he said. He was given half of the beauty. So the Prophet, this fourth opinion says that he was talking about himself. But out of bashfulness and shyness, he didn't want to say half of my beauty, but he said half of the beauty. So this fourth opinion, this group says that the Prophet, uh, that Adam, that Yusuf had half the beauty of the Prophet Sallallahu There is a hadith, but it's weak in Sunan Tirmidhi says the Prophet tells his companions that no prophet has been given uh, an appearance or. Uh, يعني, that he's the best of the prophets in appearance or in looks but it's a weak hadith so now let me ask you something if Yusuf السلام, and you know the beauty of Yusuf السلام, and how people were taken by his beauty the women when they had the, the fruits and the knives Allah didn't say Wa He said Wa that they cut their hands multiple times and can you imagine how gone you have to be how taken you have to be by something to cut your hand and palm with a knife once and not feel it and cut again There is nothing that can distract you that much in this world right I mean I don't know <laughs> maybe tiktok for the kids and you know, cut their hand multiple times and, but nothing really right one cut you like you're cursing whatever this thing that distracted you huh and they said, "In This is like an honorable angel. It's not; he's not even a human. So let me ask you: If the Prophet had twice that beauty, don't you think that would be more noticeable in the Sirah? Don't you think? Yeah. So some of uh, some of the scholars said this: they, about the Prophet ﷺ that Allah ﷻ جل that Allah would have made the Prophet ﷺ at the hams- handsomeness and level of Yusuf alayhi salam. But he covered or halved, some say he, he have that beauty and gave the other half in haybah, a commanding presence. Why? Because that is befitting for a Prophet who is going to go into battle, who is going to strangle a shaitan, is going to, you know, deal with enemies and negotiate, and it's not befitting to be insanely handsome at this point. It's befitting to have a commanding presence where people cannot look you in the eye enough, and that's why we have the narration of Umar ibn Khattab when he said that it was the, it was a full night. and he said Layla muqmirah it was a night with a full moon, and he says he starts. C- he says, I started to look at the face of the Prophet ﷺ, and then look at the full moon. Can you imagine someone doing something like that? I and mean, just looking at someone's face and looking at the moon, comparing the beauty of the two, the brightness of the two. And then he says, He said, and the face of the Prophet ﷺ was brighter than the moon. And then he said, he said we couldn't stare at him for a long time. One of the companions said I never got my fill of looking at the Prophet because he had this haybah, this commanding presence. So you can't stare at him but you would look and then you'd look away and then you'd go back again and then you'd look away. So, So that's... That fourth opinion, I just wanted to mention, it's not a very popular one. The second one's the most popular, half of the beauty of Adam a.s. So, so then uh, they sought permission and go up, they went up to the fourth heaven where he saw Idris sala. And and by the way, second and third heaven, so Isa and Yahya and uh, Yusuf and Idris a.s., all of them said, Welcome, righteous prophet, righteous brother. Adam a salam is the only one who said, "Son, then the rest, brother." Then he goes to the fifth heaven. And then he says, "There I saw Harun, Sheikh Jaleelan, and an old man a Sheikh with a commanding presence, and he said, "Welcome, righteous prophet, righteous brother." Then they sought permission until the sixth heaven, and he went in and there he saw Musa salam. Who said, Welcome, righteous prophet, righteous brother? And then they, they went to the seventh heaven. And there the Prophet said, I saw an bait al-Ma'mur, which in English we refer to it or translate it as the most frequented house. And and it's basically as the Prophet described it, it is the Kaaba of the Heavens. The Kaaba of the Heavens. And the Prophet then said, Every day, 70,000 angels visit this place, this Kaaba of the heavens, and they never come back to it. Meaning, they're unique visitors, to use uh, <laughs> website visitor terms. Yani. They're unique visitors. They, they will come for the first time, and they'll never come again. And next day, another 70,000 come. This is their first visit, and it, they're never going to do a second visit. Just They're never going to come again. So it tells you the, the huge numbers of angels that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has created who are war- worshipping him non-stop. Non-stop in quality and in quantity of worship. Yani, if you are 30 years old today, just since the time you were born until today, when you turn 30, 766 million angels visited al-bayt al Or if in the... In the in the thousand four hundred years since the Prophet told us of this incident. Yeah. Not and Allah knows how long this has been going on. But since the Prophet told us about this until today, that would be somewhere around 370 billion angels. There are like eight billion people on earth now. Three hundred and seventy billion angels just since the time the Prophet told us of this in the thousand four hundred years. Would have visited the bayt al-Mamur, let alone the thousands of years before that, and that's why you always see how Allah in the Quran mentions that. Do you not see that He is worshipped or praised by those in the heavens and and in the earth? And now you see what it means in the heavens: these immense numbers of the angels. So what happens? Um, the this is the al-Bait. This is al-Bait al-Mamur, and then there was someone. With his back against, this is like such a such a cool, huh? Such a cool, liqa, such a cool position. There's someone chilling with his back against the Kaaba of the heavens, just like that. And that was Ibrahim alayhi salam, who welcomed the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam. He said, "Welcome, righteous prophet, righteous son, right? Because he's the 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 father of Ismail, who is." From the fathers of our Prophet ﷺ, so he welcomed him. Then the Prophet said, "The one who looks the most like him, looks resembles him the most, is your companion." Meaning himself, that he is the one who looks the most like Ibrahim ﷺ. Like even the Prophet noticed it. And then the Prophet ﷺ, "Ibrahim ﷺ is the only one, and we love Ibrahim ﷺ so much, we cannot even send." full Salah upon our Prophet unless we send Salah upon Ibrahim sala. We're the ones, we're the ones who have rights to Ibrahim more than anyone, more than any other religion. We're the ones who mention him in our tajahud, in every single prayer. So he is the only one who sent us a gift and Salam with the Prophet wasallam. He said, أَقْرِ أُمَّتَكَ مِنِّي Give your Ummah a Salam from me. The only one who did that, and then he says, then he sent us a gift. He said, "Tell them that Al Jannah has very fertile soil, and to plant something in Al Jannah, you say, Subhanallah, Alhamdulillah, Allahu Akbar, and La Ilaha Illallah." And the scholars say you can say them in any order, and when you say any one of these, a tree is planted for you in Al Jannah, and. The trees of al-Jannah, the Prophet ﷺ said that a traveler or like someone would be riding his animal for a journey of such and such and he's still under the shade of one tree. That's the size of these trees. So Ibrahim ﷺ sent us this gift. Say subhanAllah, alhamdulillah, la ilaha l-Allah. Say it in any order. And for each one, a tree is planted for you in al-Jannah. And you can say thousands throughout your day. That was a gift that was sent to us by Ibrahim ﷺ. And that's why we love Ibrahim. This is one of the reasons why, besides his connection to us through our Prophet ﷺ, besides what he has done for Tawheed, besides his place being the Khalil of Allah Azza all that. From this point on, what, what do we have left? What do we have left is that the, the Prophet ﷺ is going to keep ascending until Jibreel can't go any higher. And the Prophet continues by himself. He will see... Sidrat al Muntaha, the furthest most lot tree, he will speak to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and Allah Azulil will legislate the salah and then there will be uh, the Prophet will ask for a reduction in the prayers and then he comes back to Bayt al Maqdis, gets on the Buraq, goes all the way back to Mecca and the narration says his bed was still warm. He gets to his bed and it's still warm then the next morning He's looking a little vexed. And of all people, Abu Jahl comes to him and says, did anything happen last night? And I'll tell you, this is like such, a, such an amazing narration. He says, did anything happen last night? Just if you want to see how amazing the Prophet was, put, your place, put yourself in his place. Now, you just went on this amazing journey and, to, and now it's morning and your job is to tell everyone what happened. Who would you start with? I would start with Abu Bak. Uh, and I would start with the other companions that have strong iman and been there for a while. And then they would be believing me and nodding as I'm explaining it to the newer Muslims and the weaker people. And if, let me tell you, if I were sitting there and Abu Jal came to me, said, did anything happen last night? Be like, no, we're good. <laughs> Nothing. And why would I start with you of all people? But look at the degree of honesty of the Prophet ﷺ and the level to which he took an al seriously, conveying the message so seriously that the first guy who asked was Abu Jahl and the Prophet ﷺ told him. And then there, was a, some, there were some moments of chaos which we'll discuss. And then the Prophet ﷺ had two very powerful ways of proving that this journey actually happened and that he wasn't lying. Two extremely powerful methods and they both worked. But then the Qurayh still refused to believe. So we we mentioned a number of things. We mentioned last time that before the journey, the Prophet ﷺ, Jibreel came to him and he opened his chest and he washed his heart. Actually, narration say he filled it with Iman and wisdom and put it back. And we said this is the second time the heart of the Prophet ﷺ is washed. By the way, just as an interesting note, Uh, So we mentioned there two times But there are some scholars who said it was even four times And there are some scholars who said the Prophet's heart was washed three times And if you want all the four They say one when he was five years old Right? When he was five years old He was with Bani Bani Sa'd Very good And uh, he was with his foster mother Halima We refer to her Halima As-Sa'diyya Sa'diyya means from Bani sa from that tribe. But her name was Halima bintu Abi Duail. So when he was five, that was the first one. Then they mention, and the evidence isn't strong for it, some scholars said when he was 10 years old, it happened again. Others say when he was 40, right before the the third one now, right before being sent as a prophet. But these two, and there's some doubt about those two, like as far as the evidence is not... Authentic and, and strong. The fourth one is the one that we mentioned before the Isra al But I did want to bring uh, a, a few questions. The first one is, couldn't Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala or Jibreel alayhi salam fill the, the heart of the Prophet wasallam with the Iman and wisdom without opening his chest, taking it out while he sees all that? Like It, it could have been, right? So why open his heart that way? Why let him see all this? Now, obviously, he didn't experience any pain, right? Obviously. So uh, uh, I found something interesting from the scholars. They said that, or I believe it was Ibn Hajr, rahimahullah, specifically. He said that this is going to be. This is an indication that the things that are going to happen on this journey are all going to be out of the ordinary and you're not going to ever be in danger, and you're not going to be hurt, and therefore there's never a reason to be afraid. You understand? So the night starts off strange and out of the ordinary, where his chest is taken out, and he doesn't feel any pain, and he obviously doesn't die, and then it's put back. So he sees something like this, so he knows he's since he was safe with this, uh, let's call it operational procedure, he is going to be safe for the rest of the night. And that's why when the burak You know jumps these fast distances He's not scared He knows he's in good hands He's not going to be injured He's not going to fall and get hurt That is part of the lesson That he'll get from that happening Right in front of him So that's one thing Uh, The other thing is The scholars also discussed Why did Jibreel come with a riding animal Why did he bring the burak Why didn't they just um, What's the word when you uh, Just are transformed Huh Teleport. Why did they just teleport to Bayt al-Maqdis? Or why didn't the like the earth fold right in front of them? And then the Prophet stepped and it unfolded and he's at Bayt al-Maqdis. And the scholars mentioned that there is a honor when you you bring someone important, a guest. You send them a vehicle. You send them someone to bring them. And so the Prophet there was an animal that was going to take him. to. So it was as if. I sent you a limo, I sent you a car. So it's not just come to me, but I also sent you a vehicle. Then um, the other thing is that we, we mentioned last week, we're kind of going through the gist of the story. And every time Jibreel a.s. knocked on the door or, or the gates of one of the heavens, the angel would ask, who is it? And he would say, Muhammad. Then he would say, is anyone with you? So... And some of the scholars commented that The angel sensed that someone was with Jibreel And then he would say Muhammad Then he would say Has he been sent? Yani Has he been sent? Or it's as if you can add between You know Brackets Has he been sent for? So every, every time in the gates they asked Has he been sent? Or has he been sent for? So you might think Has he been sent as a messenger? Like he became a prophet Has he become a prophet yet? And you would imagine That the angels in the heavens Would know When the Prophet Was sent for And became a prophet Of Allah Azawajal So there are three things here Concerning that The first is that Has he been sent for To ascend up to the heavens? Which brings to the third point That from Honoring the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, all the angels knew that he was going to come visit the heavens. But it's as if they didn't know that he was already sent for. So when they when they when the Prophet when knocked, he would say, they would say, Has he been sent for? Yani, He's been sent to come up to for to the visit, for the journey. So they meant didn't mean as a prophet, but they meant as to come up to, to the heavens. Then others said, that is ta'ajjuban. Yani they were amazed that, oh, has he been sent already? Like the, we didn't know that he was with you. And then, as like I said, the third one is that they uh, they knew he was coming, but they just didn't know it was that time. That's just to, in case you're reading on your by your own on your own, and then you see that has he been sent? What does that mean? They didn't know that he was a prophet. He has been sent as a prophet some years ago. Like we're like. A year or so before the Hijrah and the angels in the heavens still don't know the Prophet ﷺ was sent to humanity. But that's not what it meant. Allah uh, The last question or thing to discuss. Why did the Prophet ﷺ ascend from Bayt al-Maqdis? Why not ascend from, يعني, to the heavens? Why did he go to Bayt al-Maqdis and then ascend from Bayt al-Maqdis to the heavens? Like why not ascend from the Kaaba to the heavens? Um, so the scholars did mention that, first of all, Bayt al-Maqdis, besides being a a site that was visited by all the prophets of Allah جل, it's also uh, a place that is uh, that has significance to uh, Isa alayhi salam and to Ibrahim alayhi salam to all the prophets, but also the Kaaba at that point was not the Kaaba that we we venerate today. It was loaded with 360 idols inside and idols outside and there was shirk. And by the way, where was the Qibla at this point? Bayt al makhdis still, right? So you see why Bayt al makhdis had its, its place. And the, the Kaaba still obviously had its place. But, and on top of that, another point. The Prophets are going to meet and pray behind the Prophet Wasallam. Do you see that being appropriate in in al Kaaba, yeah, with its idols, with uh, you know people all over the place? Like it, it is not as uh, a secluded, uh, I guess, in a for lack of a better term, back then location as uh, al Maqlis would have been. Anyways, just some interesting uh, thoughts. But basically, then the second thing is we 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 went through last time the Prophet ﷺ ascending from one heaven to the next, and then he would meet different prophets at different levels of these heavens and the scholar said that there isn't a significance for or, or a reason or wisdom behind why Isa and Yahya alayhim were in the second heaven and why uh, Yusuf alayhi salam was in the third and why Idris was in the fourth but is there a significance as to why these prophets yani why wasn't Sheith there why wasn't Noah there he's one of the five greatest prophets why wasn't uh, pick anyone Ash'iyah, Armiyah, Aramaya <laughs> you know the other prophets right so the, this, Ibn Hajar rahimahullah, tried to come up with some uh, some possible wisdoms he says Adam السلام, with each one of the prophets that he met there was something relevant to the life and the story of the prophet wasallam. he said Adam salam was sent out of a magnificent place and a place that was very beloved and dear to To his heart, he was sent out of al-Jannah. And of course, later on, he will return to it. And the Prophet ﷺ was sent out of a city that was very beloved to him, and that was Mecca, and he returned to it victorious. He said that Isa and Yahya ﷺ, both of them were harmed by their people or the people around them, specifically mentioned The Jews. They, they harmed them and attempted to kill Isa alayhi salam and succeeded in killing Yahya alayhi Same thing with the Prophet wasallam when he moved to Medina. He was harmed by the Jews of Medina and they attempted to kill him and the lady at the end, when they conquered at the end, the lady was able to put the poison into the meat. Then he mentioned that Yusuf alayhi salam, he was betrayed by his brothers or like his family. And when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gave him the upper hand, what did he do? He forgave them. And the same way it's like the family of the Prophet meaning his kinsmen let him down and sent him out. And then later on he got power and conquered Mecca and came back. But yet he just forgave them. Harun alayhi salam, um, if you know the story of Musa and Harun alayhi you'll know that Bani Israel, they loved Harun a.s. very much. They loved Harun a lot. And Musa was uh, a little like stern and kind of uh, a little harder on them. But they, had, they always would go to Harun a.s. So uh, he was loved by his people. And in the same way, Muhammad السلام, was very much loved by his followers, the believers. Then they, he mentioned Musa a.s. And his, his significance being there, he is a, a prophet who has suffered a lot. From his people. his Both those who believed in him and those who didn't believe in him. And in the story of Musa, is a lot of, there are a lot of messages for the Prophet And that explains also why Allah Azulil mentions the story of Musa and the name Musa 136 times in the Qur'an. So there's a, a lot of mention there. Then... Uh, Ibrahim salam. of course He is the one who raised the foundation of the Kaaba He is the one who purified the house And he is the one who Like in uh, you know, Hajj, the story of Hajj Everything has its origins with him So it's understandable why Ibrahim salam was there So I believe we ended with we. The last thing we spoke about Was al-bayt al-ma'mur Which we said was the. We spoke about it, right? Right? Okay So what was the The Kaaba of the heavens. And we said the Prophet ﷺ mentioned that every day 70,000 angels will visit this house in the heavens. And it will be their first and their last visit. They will never come to it again. And every day 70,000 will come. And so this week, Monday 70,000 visited and Tuesday and Wednesday. Just this week, how many angels visited al-Bayt al-Ma'mur? Or as we said last time, since the Prophet ﷺ spoke, and told us about this, and it's been going on for Allah knows how long, since the Prophet told us about it until today, how many angels have visited? I think we gave a number was like 376 billion or something like that, right? Anyways, so, um, I didn't didn't we mentioned the visit, uh, the meeting with Ibrahim salam. yeah? I remember that he said, welcome righteous son, righteous prophet. Whereas all the other prophets said, welcome righteous brother, Righteous Prophet. And then Ibrahim salam sent us a gift. Anyone remember? Well, really two gifts. One, he sent us a And he's the only one who did that. He said, "Abul Give your ummah salam from me. And then let them know that Jannah has very fertile soil. One narration says, not enough trees. He's going to now give us a tip so we can plant trees. What is it? Subhanallah, Alhamdulillah, Allahu Akbar and La Ilaha illallah. And every time you say, each one, a, pl- a tree is planted for you in Al-Jannah, in your palace in Al-Jannah And the Prophet mentioned in the hadith that the trees of Al-Jannah are so huge That you will travel for a long distance and you're still under the shade of one tree So right now as you're sitting here, you can be just planting trees You can plant easily 2,000 trees before you get up from here, before we're done inshallah. So you can be listening and planting. People ask you, "What do you do for a living?" I'm a doctor, but I'm also a farmer. What do you do? I plant trees. What kind? Not sure. (laughs) (laughs) But I'll see them one day, (laughs) inshallah. (laughs) Can I visit you? Mm. You have to do something before you. (laughs) All right, wonderful. Um, So then, then. And Nabi Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam he got to what is known as or or he after meeting with Ibrahim they ascended, kept climbing higher. One narration mentions that he the Prophet Jibreel stopped. The Prophet looked to Jibreel, and we said Jibril is Shadidul Qua, the most powerful of the angels, the leader of the angels, the powerful. And he looked like he was about to collapse upon himself. And he says, I cannot take one more step. He said, if I take one more step, I will burn up. So the Prophet ﷺ went beyond where even Jibreel ﷺ could go, and he continued until he saw what is known as Sidrat al-Muntaha, the furthest most tree or lot tree as we translate it. And the Prophet describes that the tree, it wasn't really that beautiful. It, it, he described that it had large leaves that looked like the ears of elephants, he said. It looked like the ears of elephants. And it had its fruits look like they were clay jugs, you know, the clay jars. And basically he's describing something very earth tone, nothing so special. And then some. Of the light of Allah Some of the light of Allah touched this tree And the tree completely transformed And the Prophet said Its colors became indescribable But what's amazing is that The Prophet had of the most eloquent tongues And when he says I couldn't even describe the colors One narration says It's like I didn't, I didn't know the colors It's like new colors Okay, how do you describe a new color, right? And uh, one narration mentions gold butterflies appeared and started fluttering around it. So it became so beautiful, transformed, and that's just from some of the light of Allah touching this tree. And then the Prophet wasallam advanced, and this is where he spoke to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And Allah jal commanded the prayer. And he was commanded, for himself and for us, that we will pray fifty times within the within the night and day. And yani in our day, we would have fifty prayers. So the Prophet sallallahu comes back down, and he meets Musa alaihi salam. He speaks to Musa alaihi and Musa alaihi salam asks him, "What has your Lord commanded from you?" All right. Oh, by the way, I forgot. Um, with Sidrat al mutah there's a narration that says Jibreel. He asked Jibril about the tree and he told him this is Sidrat al mutah Which means that he got with Jibreel to this level and then he advanced beyond it by himself. And Jibril told him that this is uh, the furthest most tree and that there are four rivers running beneath it. Two rivers that are hidden and uh, f- meaning from the rivers of Al-Jannah. And then two from the rivers of the Dunya, and the Prophet specifically mentioned the Nile and the Euphrates River, um, and Nil yani, and Furat. And, any, well, anything significant about those two, the Nile and the Furat? The Nile is the greater one. But, yeah, I mean, Longest, longest river in the world and all the, the, the life and the civilization that, uh, that comes around these two. The Furat obviously is in a very important area. It's in uh, Iraq and Ibrahim alayhi salam and all, all these prophets. But, but the point is that, yeah, so it, the, the question actually is why is it that when the Prophet salam came back down, the discussion was between him and Musa alayhi salam. So Musa السلام, asked him, what did your Lord command you? And he said, he commanded me 50 prayers within the day and night. So Musa السلام, advises, go back and ask your Lord to decrease. I asked Bani Israel for less than that and they weren't able to do so. Okay, so the scholars said, possibly, why didn't he go back to Ibrahim alayhi they said, there are some things about Musa alayhi salam. First of all, he was a kaleem of Allah. He spoke to Allah. and When Allah spoke to him, he gave him commandments. So Musa is already familiar with that. When Allah speaks to you, it's not Janet just to ask how you're doing. When Allah speaks to you, he gives you commandments, right? فَعْبُدْنِي وَأَقِمِ الصَّلَاةً Allah said to Musa alayhi salam. So he knows that he's going to get commandments. That's number one. Number two, the scholars mentioned that uh, Musa salam got the largest, uh, from all the other prophets, the largest volume or amount of revelation, and more than Ibrahim a.s. And then they said he owned he, he was the leader of the second largest ummah ever. The largest ummah ever on the Day of Judgment will be our ummah, the ummah of Muhammad wasallam, But the second largest will be that of Musa salam. So, he's someone who has experience with commandments and passing them on to large numbers of people, and then see the, seeing the feedback and reaction of these people are they going to take to it, take well, or, or yani, act upon it, or are they going to resist? So, he was in a better place to advise than Ibrahim. So, then, so the Prophet ﷺ goes back and asks for a decrease. The scholars say, when the Prophet ﷺ goes back to Allah to ask Does he go back to the same high point And he leaves Jibreel behind And does he speak to Allah Azawajal Or does he just turn to the side And make du'a Or ask Allah Ta'ala to decrease Does Allah ta'ala respond through uh, a, Like Mush intermediary uh, Mutarjim uh, or interpreter uh, Or someone who conveys the message Or does he speak directly to Allah The narrations don't say the narrations don't say, because the whole point is really here about the salah. The Prophets was already honoured by becoming a kalim of Allah that Allah spoke to him, and now the idea is about the salah. So whether he turned or, or moved slightly to the side and made dua to Allah Azza wa Jibril informed him, we don't know. So the first time the Prophets goes back and the salawat are decreased by ten, so they become forty. So he comes back and Musa alayhi salam. Prophet is narrating, Musa asked me what did your Lord decree? And he said, There are 40 salawat. He said, Ask your Lord to decrease. Go back and ask your Lord to decrease. I asked Ben Israel for less than that and they weren't able to. So then he goes back Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. For the second time, ten are knocked uh, off. So now it's thirty. Then he tells them the same thing. And the Prophet says in the narration, he says the same thing to me. So he went back and asked Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to decrease. So now ten uh, another ten were taken off. So now it's twenty salawat. Then Musa says the same thing. Then the Prophet goes back and 10 are taken off. So now there are 10. This was the fourth return. And then Musa says the same thing and the Prophet goes back and 5 are taken off. So now how many remain? 5. So he goes back when Musa asks him and he says there are 5. And Musa says go back and ask your Lord to decrease. I asked Bani Israel for less than that and they couldn't do it. Can you imagine that? When you see the, the when you read the story of Musa as-Salam with Bani Israel, just every corner they gave him a hard time. Every corner they disobeyed. Or they cut corners, or it's just unbelievable. So they couldn't even do less than five. So the Prophet said let uh, me see where this is. And so the Prophet ﷺ here says that he felt ashamed for how many times from how many times he went back to Allah He so says like I just feel ashamed from how many times I went back to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And like how many times could you and we're not even comparing to Allah and no one is comparable to Allah Azza. But if someone does you a favor, like I don't know, a judge or some governor or something and you go to his office and they do something for you, and you knock on his door and come back and say, you know something? I'm sorry, I changed my mind. Do you mind changing it to this? I'm like, sure, absolutely no problem. And you go and you... I'm sorry, no, it's, I'm sorry. Just one more. The third time. Now, uh, I'm so sorry. Yeah, I mean, this is a human being. When Allah we don't compare Allah to, to His creation. But this is a human being and you. how many times could you knock on someone's door without feeling bad? Even if they're not important, you'd be like, I'm so sorry, Wallah. You know. So the Prophet says... That I have uh, felt bad from how many times I kept going back to my Lord. And when the Prophet said that, a caller called out, Nada Munadin, يعني, someone called out, O oh Muhammad, they are five in execution, in ada'. You do them you, in execution, they are five, but 50 in reward. So multiplied by 10. Then the Prophet ﷺ goes, descends down to Bayt al-Maqdis. If you take the other narration, we mentioned this in the beginning, that he led the prophets in prayer, then ascended up to the heavens, or he ascended up to the heavens, come back, came back, led the prophets in prayer, and then rode on the burak and came back. So um, in this narration then, Prophet ﷺ got on the burak and started returning back to Mecca. There is a narration that mentions on the way back, he saw a caravan that was on their way to Mecca. And they had lost a camel of theirs. And he, t- he yelled out to them that your camel is in such and such a place. Tayb. And we said this could be explained by what we mentioned last time, how the Burak moved, that he jumped from where he was until as far as his eyes could see, or the end of the horizon. So the scholars who mentioned this or the Bashayikh who explained it this way, they said, while he's in the jump, he saw from his vantage point where the lost animal was or where the lost camel was and yelled out to them that your camel is in such and such an area. And there's also a narration that says they, know, they recognized his voice and they said it sounds like the Muhammad from Mecca. Anyways, this narration mentions that when he landed near their, um, like their uh, campsite and he drank a little bit from a container that had water and put it back and then he continued and made it back to Mecca and one narration says he made it back to his bed while his bed was still warm. Yeah? When your bed is still warm that means you haven't been gone for long, Right? You wake up at night, you get out of bed, do something, come back, it's still warm. That means you weren't gone for long. Okay. By the way, just an interesting point. <sighs> um, if, you're, if you're in a desert and you find water and it belongs to someone, you're allowed to drink from it. So, this is just a fiqh issue. There's, there's no ownership to water. So, you could drink from it. And I had, I had a relative who Almost died of thirst in the desert And they were like all ran out of water And then they found A a huge container that was Covered and it was Known that this was someone else's water And two of them drank And then one said No I'm not going to drink until I get permission And the owner was far He said I waited until I got there And then I asked him he says yes then I went back and drank But and that's why The more you know the easier life becomes Like he could drink from it and uh, the owner wouldn't even have the right to say, "No, it's my water. You can, you can die. I don't feel like sharing today." All right. So the Prophet in the morning he he was uh, at the Kaaba, and of all people. Yeah, yeah. So, of all people, Abu Jahl came to him. And he, he the Prophet narrates it himself. He said he was looking and he was worried and he had all this uh, concern and anxiety and he had a perplexed look on his face. And Abu Jahl, of all people, came to him and he said, Did anything happen? Because you could see the look on his face. And this is what I was saying last time that and the Prophet, when, when you put yourself in his place, you think No I wouldn't I wouldn't do the same thing Rasulullah was different Like of all people If you had to tell people Of this journey That's hard to believe And all the miraculous things That happened I would start with Abu Bakr I would start with Abu Bakr And then I would tell Ali ibn Abi Talib And I would tell You know my wife And I would tell all the believers That the ones that are most Going to accept And, and believe In what happened And then we start to, to Let it trickle out But the first guy who came was the worst guy. He was Abu Jahl of all people. He came and he said, Did anything happen? And the Prophet said, Yes. He said, What happened? He said, Last night I went to Bayt al Maqdis and I came back. And I would have just said, No, nothing. It's fine. So it's all right. Don't worry about it. Because I don't want him to, I don't want to start with him. I'll let him know later. Tomorrow. (laughs) But not right Not the first guy. So he kept like, a straight face. He said, uh Yeah, he, first he said, Hal min shay? did anything happen? He said, A The other narration says, in uh, if I call your people, would you tell them what you just told me? And the Prophet said yes. And for the first time in their history he started to call everyone to listen to the Prophet ﷺ. And yani they used to hire girls to walk and follow the Prophet ﷺ and sing and drown out his voice so nobody hears it. They brought another Bilharith ibn al-Harith all the way from a Ta'if to just come and follow the Prophet ﷺ. And then when he starts preaching, he starts telling stories just to get the crowd away. And now for the first time ever, they're calling. So he starts to call. He said, Ya Ma'ashara Bani Ka'b ibn Lu'ayy. He starts to call them all. And they gathered. And the Prophet ﷺ told He said, tell them what you just told me. And the Prophet ﷺ said, last night, I went to Bayt al-Maqdis. And I returned in the same night. So a journey that takes them one month going. And one month coming, the Prophet ﷺ went in the same night and came back. And the narrator says, so people were between uh, their reactions Putting their hands on their head and clapping their hands, or clapping in disbelief. And this is a cultural thing. I always like to ask people, "What does that look like? Clapping in disbelief?" So I think Arabs know what that means, right? What? Yeah, clapping in disbelief. But when I when I ask, <laughs> if people start doing this. Like, there's not it doesn't look like disbelief? <laughs> Looks like you're st- you're starting an applause for someone, like in the movies, but. It's like this. La ilaha ilaha. Somebody tells you a huge lie, like la ilahe. This guy's such a liar, like that, you know. So, and then some. Some left. Some left Islam. This this narration of al-irtidad, the people apostatizing, is mentioned by al-Hakim in his book al-Mustadrak. He actually mentions it that some people actually left Islam you know the newer muslims the, they actually left okay and uh, imam al says that the narration is authentic or he he authenticated the narration so uh, a number of things uh, we we're, we're talking about uh, until today there are some people who have issues with this story in particular the Isra and Mi'raj until today yani it was it, it seems like for all times it will be the the measure Or the I guess the the criterion between the believer and the one who just doesn't want to believe that until this day you will find people saying that oh it doesn't make sense or how can someone you know cover these huge distances and all that remember that story I told did I say it last week about the guy who was saying you know if the moon split what would happen to the gravitational pull and all these all these laws of physics that he's quoting who created these laws Allah subhanahu wa taala who can cancel them or put them on pause what's the problem so um, but until today but if you look at the, the Quran and you, you look at the miracles of all the prophets they're not designed to be things that are just normal and ordinary that anyone can can do or perform they're that's what exactly what a muajiza means al Muajiza. actually is not even a very strong word from al muajizah from from when you're not capable of doing something So it's something beyond the ordinary That you would be incapable of doing And that's, But ayah is even a stronger word But the point is that If, if you look at Musa a.s. When he split the Red Sea Allah says Can you imagine that? That when Musa pointed to the Red Sea It split open And how deep is the Red Sea? I don't know but it's deep and it opened up all the way to the, to the bed of the, or the bottom of the seabed. And where'd the water go? It was like a mountain. They had two mountains on the side, like a mountain of water as high as your eye could see, on this side and this side. And then the ground was wet, not even muddy. And they could walk on it. And how would you, like, what would that look like visually? Like you're walking on the seabed, and there's a mountain of water this way it parted, and the other one parted the other way. And it looks like, and you touch it, it's water. But it's staying put. Uh, And now, is that normal? So, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala does things beyond the the ordinary. And that's why when people say, Oh, the the moon can't split. And how can the moon split? And then we put it back to, And nothing happened. And nothing was disrupted. And and how come the world didn't see the moon split? Let me ask you this. If I told you yesterday at 9.36 p.m., the moon actually split like this for 10 seconds and came back together. There were 200 people in the room. How many of you would have seen it yesterday? Don't put your hand up. Because that would mean, if you would have said, that I would have seen it, that means yesterday at 9.36, you were staring up at the moon. Even if you're outside having a conversation with someone, the moon would split for 20 seconds, come back, you wouldn't even know. Unless your conversation was about the moon. So like how many people would see it? Anyways, the point is that You know when you, when you Google uh, You know Is there a crack on the moon You just You will find video after video Made by Muslims about how the, When the astronauts landed They saw a huge crack So many videos on YouTube And so many websites say, so, Oh yes there is a crack on the moon One of our uh, Maghreb instructors Actually called NASA and, and a lot of you guys Some of you work for NASA. He, said, hey. he called NASA and said hey did you guys ever find the crack on the moon? He said no. <laughs> you guys know the joke right? He said no all the, cron- the, all the crack is in the Bronx. There's no crack on the moon. <laughs> Alright or Detroit or whatever you want. Like the point is that. <laughs> The there are things out of the ordinary If you want to come and do Calculations and physics It's not, it's not going to work out and if, you, and if it did work out It wouldn't be something miraculous That only a genuine prophet of Allah could do Moving on So Then some of the people Of in the, the Quraysh They had been to Bayt al maqdis so they said, some of us, and they knew that the Prophet ﷺ had never traveled to Bayt al-Maqdis. So they said, some of us have seen Bayt al-Maqdis, so describe it to us. So the Prophet ﷺ, he described what he saw. He went at night. It wasn't a tour of the architecture of Bayt al-Maqdis. He went in, led the prayer, and then ascended from that point. Then he came down, according to the other narration, didn't even go inside, gone on the Barak and rode back. Like how much would he Notice its architecture. So he described it roughly. Yani, there's some of you who've been praying here, like since this area has been built. Uh, how many windows are in here? Don't count them now. How many windows? How many lights? It's not fair to ask you that. Even if you've been praying here for three years, it's not fair to tell you how many light bulbs. They ever count them? How many fans type? How many windows? How many arches over the windows? It's, it's not fair. So they started to ask the Prophet ﷺ about details that even the architect forgot. It's not fair, but they're not trying to be fair. They're just trying to stump him and prove he is a liar in front of the audience, in front of people and, and embarrass him. He said the Prophet said I was was taken with so much worry and concern. He says, Then I looked up and Allah brought the image of Bayt al-Maqdis right in front of me and I, in my mind now I imagine it just like the image is floating in front of you and you could like zoom in pinch out turn it flip it <laughs> and he said I could see it right in front of me so they started to ask for ridiculous details and he answered it because he could see it sallallahu alaihi wasallam just like that and he, without a single mistake to the point that they said ammanat nat anil wasf nāt, faqad wallahi asab as for the description. Allah, he got it. It's accurate. But they still wouldn't believe. So someone ran and got and told Abu Bakr. So this is one of those greatest moments in the history of the planet. Someone ran and told Abu Bakr and said, you should see Muhammad is saying that he went to Bayt al-Maqdis last night. And he woke up amongst us this morning, and the first answer of Abu Bakr was, "If he has said that, because he doesn't, he needs to verify. He doesn't know if this person is speaking the truth or not." He said, "If he has said that, then he has spoken the truth." Wallahi la qala sadaq. If he said that, he has spoken the truth. So the man said, "How can you believe something like that? How can you believe you go to Beit al maqdis and come back, and it takes us a month, two months going and coming?" And look, Abu Bakr anhu, he wasn't just a saddiq, he just believed everything. He didn't like to argue, he was uh, non-confrontational. And sometimes some authors, they don't analyze his personality properly. And they make it look like he was just this timid fellow who just saddiq, yeah, I believe everything. La he believed because he was smart. And that's why the companion said Abu Bakr was the smartest one, the most intelligent one amongst us. So when he, the man says, how can you believe something like that? Look at this logic. He said, I believe him in something greater than that. In news that comes instantly from the heavens. I, mean, I'm, I believe that he is the Prophet of Allah. Jibreel comes to him. Sometimes we're sitting with him, we ask him a question, he, stay, he stays quiet. Then he says, Jibreel just told me. Where did Jibreel come from? He brought a message from Allah He came down in mere moments. He said, I believe him in something greater than that. News coming from the heavens in an instant. That's greater than a journey within the earth in a short period of time. So he went to the Prophet. And I'd like you to imagine this. How it's not just I don't Allah yani but I just I don't imagine that it's just a believer supporting his Prophet, but also a best friend supporting his best friend. That you can if you imagine that the Prophet is sitting. And the people are gathered. And by the way, the other rea- reaction was some people laughing. So you can see Abu Jai, still happy, still calling people. Keep, you know, keep pushing it. Like, you see, you see, can you believe this, man? And some people are laughing. And some people clapping their hands in disbelief. And others, I'm not, de- I'm not following this man anymore. I'm not believing in this religion. And Abu Bakr comes while the Prophet is sitting amongst these masses and this commotion. And he goes Ya Rasulullah Did you go to Bayt al-Maqdis last night? And you woke up amongst us this morning? And the Prophet said Yes Everyone's waiting Because this is his best friend And everyone's waiting To hear To see the reaction of Abu Bakr And Abu Bakr tells him out loud In front of everyone Sadaqt And the Prophet tells him Wa anta ya Aba Bakr As-siddiqt and you, Abu Bakr, you are As-Siddiq. Other narrations said that the Prophet would ask him and he, as he would explain, he would say, Sadaqt, Ash'hadu innaka Rasulullah. Sadaqt, I bear witness that you are the messenger of Allah. And then the Prophet told him, وَأَنْتَيَ Abu Bakr السِّدِّقَ And you, Abu Bakr, you are As-Siddiq. And from that day, he became known as Abu Bakr As-Siddiq, the truthful. And he, because he, ...believed his Prophet There, There is a, a narration going back to the caravan on the way back. The Prophet, uh, he said that, he saw... ...he said, let there be a deciding point between me and you. And that is, uh, a, there is a caravan on its way here. The lead camel, they used to adorn... ...when they had a lead camel, they used to adorn... ...decorate the lead camel in different ways... So he said, the lead camel is dressed in, adorned in a specific way with these colors, with this kind of, you know. And then uh, they lost a camel in an area, and I called out to them that your camel is in the area of such and such. And they had a container of water that was covered, I drank from it, and I covered it back. They said, okay, that will, that will, tell, if, that will tell us if you're speaking the truth. What is, how far away are they? And based on the distance, where The Prophet saw them You could estimate They're like a day and a half They're half a day away He said they'll be here on the day of such and such And they said okay That will be our deciding factor Because there's no way he could have At night gone to this caravan That was a day or a day and a half Or half a day away And come back half a day And, and still wake up there And talk. There's no way he would know something like that So the next day Or the day of They were all out in the morning Early Awaiting, and then sure enough, from the horizon, they see a caravan approaching. When they got closer, the lead camel is adorned and decorated the same way the Prophet ﷺ described. And these are not Muslims who were out on a journey. They were non-Muslims, pagans. So when they, when they finally arrived, they said, did you guys uh, lose a caravan? on the night of such and such. Now, sorry, did you guys lose a camel, on the night of such and such? They said, yes. And did someone call out to you and tell you where it is? They said, yes. Did you have a container of water that someone drank from? They said, yes. We came back and it was, had less water than before. And they still wouldn't believe the Prophet Because their point was not they were just trying to prove that he's a liar. They weren't trying to prove to themselves or find evidence that he's a genuine prophet so they can follow him. They're just trying to prove that he's a liar. Even when they asked for miracles, they were trying to stump the Prophet. They weren't trying to say, Prove to me that you you're a, a, a genuine prophet, do something out of the ordinary, I'll believe in you. They're just challenging him just to ridicule him in front of people. Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. So as I said, like there are many ways, especially with the seerah, you know, the sirah is very deep and there are many different angles through which you can study the seerah. And there are many different angles through which you can see the exact same story. And I used to do this. I used to uh, you know, teach. Even before for the Maghrib Institute, before that I used to teach the seerah for this other institute. And, and it was interesting how we would tell this story and say, okay, what lessons and benefits do you see from this story? And we would have so many different, so much different input Because everyone comes from a different background From a different uh, personalities Different discipline I And mean, There was someone who gave a lecture On geology from the seerah An hour long lecture On geology from the seerah I don't even know how okay? But he's a geologist So when he hears that on the way back from Tabuk They saw a washal Which is a rock that has water coming out of it or when we just see the describe this description of the, the Harat of Medina, it's volcanic rock, so he can understand so much about the terrain. There was a sister who was writing a book on the counseling methods of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. She was a counselor, you know. So you can see the same story from a different angle. And and I used to when I used to teach this class. I used to be able to tell people their profession just from what they see in the story. Like someone would say, I see this in the story. Are you in, are you an educator? Do you teach? Yes, actually I'm a teacher. Someone would say, I saw this. Uh, do you work in sales or something like that? Yes, actually I do work in sales. Like that's how deep the Sira is. That Everyone can look at it from a different angle and you can just keep piling and piling the gems from the Sira. But I did want to focus on the idea that the, the Isra and Mi'raj journey happened in body and in spirit. That it was not a dream. And there's a lot in the story that says this happened in body and in spirit and not a dream. So that's my focus. Because we're also kind of... Uh, every time we deal with the story, we're dealing with people who say, well, this is not possible and this could not happen. And this, uh, according to physics, this is not... You know, so... We're talking to those people specifically So from all the possible angles I wanted to take this angle And say and argue that The Isra and Mi'raj journey Happened in body and in spirit It was not just a dream And it was not the spirit of the Prophet In the dream having these experiences The first thing is When we look at the verses That we began with last time In Surah Al-Isra Subhana alladhi asra bi'abdihi The scholars said when can you refer to someone as a abd? And when do you refer... If it just happened in spirit, would that spirit be called the abd of Allah, the worshipper of Allah? Abd An interesting point. So the word abd in Arabic means worshipper and it also means like servant or slave. And so when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala refers to the Prophet as his abd, he means in uh, in the sense as uh, that he's his worshipper. Why? Because the highest level you can attain is to become a worshipper of Allah Azza wa Jalla, and it would not have much value for Allah Azza wa Jalla to refer to the Prophet as his slave here, just like I am his slave, you're his slave. His ownership, just like he owns the trees and the jinn and everything. There's no value. It doesn't set him apart from anyone here. But when the Prophet ﷺ refers to himself as abd, he means as a, a servant and a slave of Allah. Because he's always careful to not um, leave room for anyone to deify him. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is calling him his abd, his devout worshipper. And if it were a journey in spirit, would that spirit be called abd? Because life is... What is life or being alive? It is when the spirit still has connection to the body. When, that's, when that connection breaks, the body becomes, called co- what's, what's the body called anymore? A corpse. a corpse, the janazah. Yeah? Like when we have a janazah in the masjid, they say, uh, bring the janazah this way. Nobody says, uh, bring Hassan Abdul Latif this way. Or, that was just a coincidence. I didn't mean like the Abdul Latif family. La, <laughs> <laughs> They don't say bring so and so, the son of so and so. They say bring the janazah. The body becomes just a janazah. And the spirit becomes a spirit. You would never be abd unless the two are connected. Anyways, that's the first thing. From the other things, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala praised the eyesight of the Prophet What does that mean? He really praised the manners and the behavior of the Prophet during this journey. Because... Allah Jalla says, al wa ma Look at the, the excellent manners of the Prophet When Allah Jalla was speaking to him, he kept his eyes in the same place. Curiosity didn't get the best of him. He didn't try to raise his eyes a little bit, see if he could see the one to, to, with which he is speaking or to whom he is speaking. He didn't do any of that. And he kept his eyes in the same place. Didn't try to. Transgressed taha. So his eyesight did not swerve Nor did it transgress You know how eyesight transgress Right? Your friend opens the door You look inside Ma Where are you looking inside? <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? Your friend opens the trunk of his car You look inside Your friend opens a wallet What do you do? You take You look inside They open a bag Everyone does this Their phone rings, could you hand me my phone? (laughs) Eyesights transgress. People curious, want see what's going on. I was talking about this guy. I brought him to my house and and I'm looking for a piece of paper. Every time I opened a drawer, he got up and went like this to look in the drawer. (laughs) So the Prophet is Allah is praising that the Prophet's his eyesight did not swerve and it did not transgress, try to look at what it didn't look at. Now, what does this have to do with it being a dream versus in, in body and in spirit? What does this point mean? When when is someone's behavior and manners praised in a dream? Yet yeah, it would Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala praise how he behaved in his dream. You understand? You praise someone's behavior, how they actually behaved, how they acted somewhere. And so Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala praised him and praised his akhlaq and his manners and, he, and praised how he never lifted his eyes because it actually happened. Otherwise, why are you praising someone's behavior in a dream? Oh, yesterday someone called me all these names and I just said, may Allah forgive you. MashaAllah, where was this? Oh, it was in my dream. Oh, really? I'm not impressed anymore because nothing's impressive in a dream. Needing a physical animal, you remember the long hadith of when the Prophet was in his dream, then two angels came. And he's how does it start that narration? It talks about I was, uh, I last night in a dream, I saw, last night in, in my dreams, two angels came to me. There's not a single narration about the Isan that says in a dream, last night in a dream, ever, right. Whereas every narration where he sees something in a dream, it clearly says last night in a dream, last night in my sleep, last night I saw. Okay, that's one. And in that narration when they took him and he saw the hellfire, some of the punishments, he saw Jannah, he doesn't talk about how they got there. And whenever you have like the description of how, you know, the physical animal, the color of the animal, the animal sweating when Jibreel said, no one's greater than him who's ever ridden you. All these details and then how it moves, all this shows that it's not a dream. Because in the dream, when's the last time you had a dream about going to someone's house but you stopped at the traffic light and you actually stopped for like 35 seconds and then you signaled that You just get there at the house in the dream. So all these details don't show. Tying the buraq. When's the last time in your dream you parked the car, you locked the door, you checked that it was locked? It doesn't happen. Sah? Then the Prophet drank from the container. How did he drink from this container from, from, of the caravan in his dream? And the water decreased. How? Alright, forget that. What was the whole issue? Why was Abu Jahl calling the Quraysh to listen to him? Because it was impossible to believe that in a dream he went to Bayt al-Maqdis? That was the issue? And I don't understand the, some of these contemporary writers who say, No, it was just a dream. Type. It was a dream. If I tell you I was in Shanghai last night, you told me, and you woke up amongst us? Yes, it was a dream. You, are you impressed that I went to Shanghai in my dreams? It's not, it's not impressive. For what's the big deal? And why did some people leave Islam and they're clapping their hands in disbelief and others are laughing? And Abu is calling people over for a dream because it was hard to believe that you could go somewhere in your dream? You tell me you went to Shanghai in your dream. Oh, well, I went to the moon in my dreams. huh? I saw Elon Musk there. Then I took his oxygen and left him there. <laughs> but why did the pros- why was his heart taken and filled with wisdom and washed and and filled with um, iman? The preparation for this journey of what he's actually about to see, but in a dream, do you need a preparation? And someone might say, "Well, maybe the preparation was made in the dream." Really, <laughs> in the dream, they washed his heart, so in his dream, he could be strong and see that. Doesn't even make sense. The Prophet returned, and his bed was still warm. Um, Jibril couldn't move any further. Okay, you could argue that it's a dream, but um, when you say it's a dream, you kill the magnificence of the journey. <laughs> he saw from some of the amazing signs of his Lord. No, he didn't. It's just a dream. Oh. Uh, the Prophet Sallallahu became a Kaleem of Allah Azzawajal. No, because it was in his dream that he spoke to Allah. You understand? You killed the honor that Allah gave him in the story by just making it a dream. So Allah spoke to him in his dream. So is he a Kaleem? Allah spoke to Musa A.S. Actually, and Musa became the Kaleem. And Ibrahim A.S. was the Khalil of Allah. And the Prophet Sallallahu has the honor of being both the Kaleem and the Khalil. But thanks to every Nasheed artist alive, we all think of the Prophet ﷺ as the Habib. Ya Habibullah, o ya habib. Every Nasheed, ya Habibullah. Khalil, Al Khullah is a higher level of love than being a Habib. So we're demoting when you say the Prophet is Habibullah or Habibullah. Demoting him is the Khalil of Allah So being a Khalil and a Kalim Both these honors But now you killed one because It was just a dream So it's not a Kalim anymore The scholar said Look at the importance of the Salah That all the commandments And the obligations came from And through Jibreel Or one way or another Except for the Salah It came directly from Allah And that shows you the importance of Salah And now you said it's a dream Now you killed it you killed the importance of Salah. You understand? Yeah? Um, uh, also, the mi'raj, not just, not just the buraq being a physical animal for this journey, but in the dream, you don't need the, the, the riding instrument in such detail, but the mi'raj also was needed. Whereas in the hadith of dreaming of seeing the, he- the hellfire in paradise, Prophet didn't mention the vehicle that took him there. You see that? Or in any other hadith where Prophet is describing a dream, never described the vehicle that took him to the heavens ever except here said so then they brought forth the Mi'raj um, uh, the Prophet seeing Jibreel in his original form which is a big deal but now now it's not a big deal because he just in a dream he saw it in a dream but he actually saw it and that's why uh, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says uh, where, where what's the verse that says uh, نَزْلَةً أُخْرَىٰ عِنْدَ And he saw him, who is him? Jibreel. Another time. So what was the first time? When he saw him after revelation. After the period that was known as the فَتْرَةِ al الْوَحِي The cessation of revelation. And then when, this, when he saw Jibreel, the next time he saw him in his original form. And so this is the second time he saw him in his original form. And Allah mentions it in the Quran that he saw him. Alright, what else do we have? And then uh, just in again in the dream of when the Prophet went to the heavens, like there wasn't the the repetitiveness of knocking on each one of the gates and then asking permission and who is it and it's Jibreel and who's with you, Muhammad. And has he been sent for? And then he welcomed them and came in and every time all that was skipped, the details indicate that it actually happened in body and in spirit. Um what would also be the significance of describing the burak and uh, the burak, you know, neighing or sweating? What would be the the significance of describing this animal if it does? It's just a dream; it doesn't exist yet. I don't know. Like, how many of you enjoy? Okay, we probably we we won't agree on this, but. One of the things I can't stand is when my kids tell me their dreams. I'm like, I don't tell. It's just nonsense. Don't tell me. And then there was a, it's not real. It didn't happen. It has no meaning, no tafsir, no significance. Just a waste of time. So what's the significance of saying the buraq fokal al himar wa dun al-baghl abiyad? What's the significance if this doesn't even exist? It's just a dream. Why do we even need to know the animal you rode in a dream? There's no significance whatsoever. Okay, maybe I'm just pushing this point too much here, but. Uh, and if it were a dream, the Prophet would have said it clearly. We said there are 20 narrations of Al Bukhari, 18 narrations of Sahih Muslim, and in other books also, and not a single one of them, not a single one says, I saw last night in a dream, or I went last night in my dream to Bayt Al Makhdis. Now you might say, um, why, why are you making a big deal out of this? Because this opens the doors to many other things, right? And that's why some of the books, uh, inshallah, when we start uh, our seerah class, we're going to start also by critiquing the, the classic and the contemporary books of the seerah. And there are some books that we might have in our bookshelves at home right now, where if you pay attention, the author denies the, the, the existence of Jibreel, and they denies the, audience, um, the, uh, the angels, and any time where Jibreel came to the Prophet, he said it's a dream. You know the life of Muhammad, that book, Alaihi Wasallam. huh? You have it? The, by uh, Muhammad Hussein Haikal. Many, many of us have it, it's translated in, in very good, clear, crisp language, you know. It makes you cry and all that. But if you notice, every time he mentions Jibreel coming to the Prophet, it was a dream. Even in the cave, when he became a prophet, he said he was sleeping in his cave, when he saw in a dream, the angel came to him. That's a big deal. If the Prophet became a prophet in his dreams, that's a big deal. And and it can put doubt, cast doubt on everything else. That he said he saw, you know, Jibril. And the angel said this to me, and it was a dream every time. And by the way, that's one of the wisdoms behind why the Prophet received revelation in more than one way. More than one way. Like there were eight different ways through which the Prophet received the message from Allah. Like why eight? Why not just one? Because let, if it's just dreams, then he couldn't do anything without going to sleep. if They ask him a fiqh question, طيب, let me sleep on it. Literally. Doesn't make sense. It's a big problem. But it just opens the, the doors to all kinds of issues and problems and casting doubt on everything. But no, it happened in body and in spirit. And that's why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in Surah Al-Najm mentions it so many times. مَا كَذَبَ الْفُؤَادُ أَفَتُمَارُونَهُ عَلَى مَا يَرَى You're going to, to doubt what he actually saw with his own eyes? وَلَقَدْ He saw him a second time. عِنْدِ At the location of the furthestmost most lot tree. عِنْدَهَا جِنَّةُ From beyond that point is Al Jannah. إِذْ This is exactly what happened. What enveloped and what affected the tree that made it change. مَا الْبَصْرُ وَمَا All this Allah is defending his behavior in the dream. And describing what he saw in his dream. All right, anyway, so with that, um, uh, I'll stop here. But that was basically the the gist of the story of Al-Isra al-Mi'raj. Believe it or not, the scholars have a lot of uh, discussions and a lot of details on why this and why that and why the significance of this and the other. And many, 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 many different narrations. And uh, they authenticate some and weaken some. So there is, you put them all together, and you come up with a, a very detailed story, and uh, that is the story that the believers don't hesitate for one second in believing, while others, this is like the biggest issue to them, and that's usually the <laughs> the way of those who have doubt and those who are uh, not believers. I, I remember just to close with this one time, I was uh, I was at work. I used to work at this company. And this co-worker says You're Muslim I said yes She said So you believe that Your prophet rode on a winged horse Because she's taking the Weak narrations of the The wings and all that stuff And I remember I was confused at Why she would ask a question like that And this was before the Dawah days So But I calculated quickly I said I Bet you she doesn't believe in God Because if you believe in God What's the big deal Winged horse, winged elephant, winged unicorn, rhinoceros. Right so I said, do you believe in God? He said, no. I said, that's the problem. If you believe in God, you believe the rest. You know, like remember the hadith, I'm, I'll just close with this. But remember when the hadith, when the Prophet said that while a man, this is towards the end of time, while a man was riding a cow, So already something wrong, right? Cows, you don't ride cows. While a man was riding a cow, it turned to him and said, I wasn't created for this. And then the Prophet says, I believe in this hadith, and so does Abu Bakr, and so does Omar. And they weren't even there. But he's giving examples of the types of believers that will believe it. Abu Bakr will believe this hadith. And Omar will believe this hadith. So he's saying, Will you? So when someone says look like, cow speaking pipe, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala created the cow. And he also created animals that can speak. Have you seen them? No? What animals speak? <laughs> You're like my children. <laughs> <laughs> Parrots, right? I don't know. There's this there's this Arab family, I think there's a Syrian family that has a parrot on Instagram. Have you ever seen them? Huh? This parrot, يعني, عجيب, man. he's like, get up and pray. And, يعني, and then of course, he speaks to the children the way the parents speak to it. فضايح, but the point is that, طيب, who created this, this animal and made it speak? Can Allah make another animal speak? But people try to make a big deal out of something where there is no big deal. But anyways, I'll, I'll, uh, <laughs> I'll stop here. For I'll stop for listening attentively and for coming. صلى الله مبارك على محمد وعلى آله وصحبه اجمعين والسلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته